have a difference? Let's try this. Everyone, welcome to Sidecar Stories. My name is Sam, and this is Flying Sidecar. It's our Thursday show. It is a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. Currently reading The Hunger Games. A very brief intro this week. Why? It's lost to the past. Nothing happened with my internet and caused me to have to record this all wonky. And this is actually the middle of a stream instead of the start of an episode. Don't worry. Forget. Watch the <laughs> watch the pocket watch. Swing back and forth and forget. Drift off to sleep. When I snap my fingers, you'll have no memory of what's just happened. But you will have the memory of a bit of review because we're going to talk about what we just talked about. Everyone. I've got a new link, linktree slash SCS playlists. That's for all of you good people who are listening to this in the future, in the future. Oh wait, I reminded you of that thing I just made you forget, rats. I don't even have my pocket watch on me, it's on my shelf behind me. Folks, a bit of review. In the chapters leading up to this point, Katniss has decided to indeed take on this role of the Mockingjay. Did you hear me forget it just then? Because I did do that. Um, Katniss decides to take on this role. She has a few demands. She wants to be able to hunt with Gale for a little bit every day. She wants to be able to, or every week. Um, she wants to um, uh, have a few extra privileges, uh, such as keeping uh, the pet cat that belongs to her sister. But most especially, the most important thing is, after Peta comes on, remember he's been captured, so he's still in the capital. After he comes onto national TV and calls for a ceasefire, which in essence, is calling really for the rebellion to just stand down. Gail says it's to keep Katniss safe, but that's not important to the rebels. In District 13, everything that they've worked for, to have you know somebody so close to the rebellion leadership call for a ceasefire, essentially call for them to give up, um, it is considered treasonous. And so, in order to protect him, Katniss has some demands. If Katniss is going to be the Mockingjay... If she's going to perform and be this 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 uh, uh, figure that you can put on posters and and film inspirational videos of, they're gonna need to promise that Peta will be pardoned along with the other uh, the other uh, tributes. And Abaria, um, uh, uh, Joanna Mason, and Annie from uh, uh, from Phoenix District. Now, of course. Katniss agrees to this, but does Katniss really know what she's agreeing to? Because the moment they get her in front of a camera, she flops. It's terrible. Katniss doesn't know how to handle this. She doesn't know how to be scripted. So, after revealing himself to be back on the team, now that he's come out of detox, Haymitch, Haymitch gets them all together, including a few unexpected individuals like Greasy Say, some people from, from Katniss's district. Very confusing. He gets them all together for a brainstorming session and has them come up with inspiring moments, moments where they personally felt inspired not by Katniss's hair or her dress or Peta making her look good, but moments where Katniss herself actually inspired them. They come up with the moments the berries feature heavily in there. The moment with the berries, of course, but drugging Peta to save his life. Um, uh, all sorts of these moments where Katniss really had an impact on people. And what do they all have in common? This is what Haymitch identifies. None of them are scripted. They're all Katniss acting for herself in the moment. It turns out Katniss is not as bad at this as she thought she was. She's not so far behind Peta as she anticipated. And so Haymitch comes up with the plan. Katniss is going to have to be dropped off into somewhere a little bit more active. With camera crew rolling, with bodyguards, of course, but Katniss is going to have to be 
in the action somewhere. And so they devise this plan to head out to District 8, and that is where they are currently. On the way here, they've done some discussion about what happens if, if District 13 really does win. How's that going to work? How, what's the plan? Well, they're going to work their way through all of the district, trying to recapture them and essentially set up um, uh, supply lines and stuff, make them stable, finishing with District 2, which is the only district that is still allied with the capital. Now, of course, it is the district that supplies, that builds weapons and supplies peacekeepers. So no slouch, even though it's just the one district. But at that point, they can cut District 2 off from the capital, cut the capital off from that supply line, from its protection, and hopefully that will be the end of this war. But what happens then? Sounds like they intend to uh, elect a... Uh, to, to, to set up a republic, which means elections, essentially. Um, and finally, now we, uh, we find ourselves heading into District 8, uh, and Plutarch Heavensby hands out some purple pills... Little violet pills, uh, which they have named Nightlock in honor of Katniss and her her first act of rebellion, her first big one. Just in case, because no one can afford to be captured now. Chapter 7. The hovercraft makes a quick spiral descent onto a wide road on the outskirts of eight. Almost immediately, the door opens, the stairs slide into place, and we're spit out onto the asphalt. The moment the last person disembarks, the equipment retracts. Then the craft lifts off and vanishes. I'm left with a bodyguard made up of Gale, Boggs, and two other soldiers. The TV crew consists of a pair of burly capital cameramen with heavy mobile cameras encasing their bodies like insect shells, a woman director named Cressida who has a shaved head tattooed with green vines, and her assistant, Masala, a slim young woman with several sets of earrings. On careful observation I see his tongue has been pierced too, and he wears a stud with a silver ball the size of a marble. Boggs hustles us off the road toward a row of warehouses as a second hovercraft comes in for a landing. This one brings crates of medical supplies and a crew of six medics. I can tell by their distinctive white outfits. We all follow Boggs down an alley that runs between two dull gray warehouses. Only the occasional access ladder to the roof interrupts the scarred metal walls. When we emerge onto the street, it's like we've entered another world. The wounded from this morning's bombing are being brought in. On homemade stretchers, in wheelbarrows, on carts slung across shoulders, and clenched tight in arms. Bleeding, limbless, unconscious, propelled by desperate people to a warehouse with a sloppily painted H above the doorway. It's a scene from my old kitchen, where my mother treated the dying multiplied by ten, by fifty, by a hundred. I had expected bombed-out buildings and instead find myself confronted with broken human bodies. 
Is this where they plan on filming me? I turn to Boggs. This won't work, I say. I won't be good here. He must see the panic in my eyes because he stops a moment and places his hands on my shoulders. You will. Just let them see you. That'll do more for them than any doctor in the world could. A woman directing the incoming patients catches sight of us, does a sort of double-take, and then strides over. Her dark brown eyes are puffy with fatigue and she smells of metal and sweat. A bandage around her throat needed changing about three days ago. The strap of an automatic weapon strung across her back digs into her neck and she shifts her shoulder to reposition it. With a jerk of her thumb, she orders the medics into the warehouse. They comply without question. This is Commander Paylor of Eight, says Boggs. Commander, Soldier Katniss Everdeen. She looks young to be a commander. Early thirties, but there's an authoritative tone in her voice that makes you feel her appointment wasn't arbitrary. Beside her, in my spanking new outfit, scrubbed and shiny, I feel like a recently hatched chick. Untested and only just learning how to navigate the world. Yeah, I know she is, says Paler. Yeah, we're live then. Yeah, we weren't sure. Am I wrong, or is there a note of accusation in her voice? I'm still not sure myself, I answer. Been in recovery. Boggs taps his head. Bad concussion. He lowers his voice a moment. Miscarriage. But she insists on coming by to see you're wounded. Yeah, well, we got plenty of those, says Paler. Do you think this is a good idea, says Gale, frowning at the hospital, assembling your wounded like this? I don't. Any sort of contagious disease would spread through this place like wildfire. I think it's a better idea than leaving him to die, says Paler. That's not what I meant, Gail tells her. Well, currently that's my other option, but if you come up with a third and get coined to back it, then I'm all ears. Paler waves me toward the door. Come on in, Mockingjay. And by all means, bring your friends. I glance back at the freak show that is my crew, steal myself, and follow her into the hospital. Some sort of heavy industrial curtain hangs the length of the building, forming a sizable corridor. Corpses lie side by side, curtain brushing their heads, white cloths concealing their faces. We got a mass grave started a few blocks west of here, but I can't spread a manpower to move them yet, says Paler. She finds a slit in the curtain and opens it wide. My fingers wrap around Gail's wrist. Do not leave my side. I say under my breath. I'm right here, he answers quietly. I step through the curtain and my senses are assaulted. My first impulse is to cover my nose to block out the stench of soiled linen, putrefying flesh and vomit, all ripening in the heat of the warehouse. They've propped open skylights that crisscross the high metal roof, but any air that's managing to get in just can't make a dent in the fog below. The thin shafts of sunlight provide the only illumination, and as my eyes adjust, I can make out row upon row of wounded, in cots, on pallets, on the floor, because there are so many to claim the space. The drone of black flies, the moaning of people in pain, and the sobs of their attending loved ones have combined to a wrenching chorus. We have no real hospitals in the districts. We lie at home, which at the moment seems a far desirable alternative to what lies in front of me. 
then I remember that many of these people have probably lost their homes in the bombings. Sweat begins to run down my back, fill my palms. I breathe through my mouth in an attempt to diminish the smell. Black spots swim across my field of vision, and I think there's a really good chance I could faint. But then I catch sight of Paler, who's watching me so closely, waiting to see what I'm made of and if any of them have been right to think that they can count on me. So I let go of Gale and force myself to move deeper into the warehouse, to walk into the narrow strip between two rows of beds. Catnitch? A voice croaks out from my left, breaking apart from the general din. Catnitch? A hand reaches for me out of the haze. I cling to it for support. Attached to the hand is a young woman with an injured leg. Blood has seeped through the heavy bandages, which are crawling with flies. Her face reflects her pain. But something else, too. Something that seems completely incongruous with her situation. Is it really you? Yeah, it's me. I get out. Joy. That's the expression on her face. At the sound of my voice, it brightens, erasing the suffering momentarily. You're alive. We didn't know. People said that you were, but we didn't know, she says excitedly. I got pretty banged up, but I got better, I say. Just like you will. I've got to go tell my brother. The woman struggles to sit up and calls to someone a few beds down. Eddie! Eddie, she's here! It's Candace Everdeen! A boy, probably about twelve years old, turns to us. Bandages obscure half his face. The side of his mouth I can see opens as if to utter an exclamation. I go to him, push his damp brown curls back from his forehead, murmur a greeting. He can't speak, but his one good eye fixes me with such intensity as if he's trying to memorize every detail of my face. I hear my name rippling through the hot air, spreading out into the hospital. Cadness. Cadness Everdeen. Cadness Everdeen. The sounds of pain and grief begin to proceed to be replaced by words of anticipation. From all sides, voices beckon me. I begin to move, clasping the hands extended to me, touching the sound parts of those unable to move their limbs, saying, hello, how are you, good to meet you. Nothing of importance, no amazing words of inspiration, but it doesn't matter. Boggs is right. It's the sight of me alive that is the inspiration. Hungry fingers devour me, wanting to feel my flesh. As a stricken man clutches my face between his hands, I send a silent thank you to Dalton for suggesting I wash off the makeup. How ridiculous, how perverse I would feel presenting that painted capital mask to these people. The damage, the fatigue, the imperfections. That's how they recognize me. Why I belong to them. Despite his controversial interview with Caesar, many ask about PETA, assuring me that they know he was speaking under duress. I do my best to sound positive about our future, but people are truly devastated when they learn I've lost the baby. I want to come clean and tell one weeping woman it was all a hoax, a move in the game, but to present PETA as a liar now would not help his image. Or mine. Or the cause. I begin to fully understand the lengths to which people have gone to protect me. 
what I mean to the rebels. My ongoing struggle against the capital, which is so felt like a solitary journey, has not been undertaken alone. I've had thousands upon thousands of people from the district at my side. I was their Mockingjay long before I accepted the role. A new sensation begins to germinate inside me. But it takes until I'm standing on a table, waving my final goodbyes to the hoarse chanting of my name, to define it. Power. I have a kind of power I never knew I possessed. Snow knew it, as soon as I held out those berries. Plutarch knew when he rescued me from the arena. And Coin knows now. So much so that she must publicly remind her people that I am not in control. When we're outside again, I lean against the warehouse, catching my breath, accepting the canteen of water from Boggs. You did great, he says. Well, I didn't faint or throw up or run out screaming. Mostly I just rode the wave of emotion rolling through the place. We got some nice stuff in there, says Cressida. I look at the insect cameraman, perspiration pouring from under their equipment. Masala scribbling notes. I'd forgotten they were even filming me. I didn't do much, really. You have to give yourself some credit for what you've done in the past, says Boggs. What have I done in the past? I think of the trail of destruction in my wake. My knees weaken and I slide down to a sitting position. That's a mixed bag. Well, you're not perfect by a long shot. But times being what they are, you'll have to do, says Boggs. Gale squats down beside me, shaking his head. I can't believe you let all those people touch you. I kept expecting you to make a break for the door. Shut up! <laughs> Shut up! I say with a laugh. Your mother's going to be very proud when she sees that footage, he says. My mother won't even notice me. She'll be too appalled by the conditions in there. I turn to Boggs and ask, Is it like this in every district? Yes. Most are under attack. We're trying to get in aid wherever we can, but it's not enough. He stops a minute, distracted by something in his earpiece. I realize I haven't heard Hamish's voice once, and I fiddle with mine, wondering if it's broken. We're to get to the airstrip, immediately, Bog says, lifting me to my feet with one hand. There's a problem. What kind of problem? asks Gale. Incoming bombers, says Boggs. He reaches behind my neck and yanks Sinna's helmet up onto my head. Let's move! Unsure of what's going on, I take off running along to the front of the warehouse, heading for the alley that leads to the airstrip. But I don't sense any immediate threat. The sky is an empty, cloudless blue. The street's clear except for the people hauling the wounded to the hospital. There's no enemy. No alarm. <sighs> Then the sirens begin to wail. Within seconds, a low-flying V-shaped formation of capital hoverplanes appears above us, and the bombs begin to fall. I'm blown off my feet, into the wall above the warehouse. There's a searing pain just above the back of my right knee. Something has struck my back as well, but it doesn't seem to have penetrated my vest. I try to get up, but Boggs pushes me down, shielding my body with his own. The ground ripples under me as bomb after bomb drops from the planes and detonates. It's a horrifying sensation being pinned against the wall as the bombs rain down. 
What was that expression my father used for easy kills? Like shooting fish in a barrel. We are the fish, the street, the barrel. Katniss! I'm startled by Hamish's voice in my ear. What? Yes, what? I'm here, I answer. Listen to me. We can't land during the bombing, but it's imperative that you are not spotted, he says. So they don't know that I'm here, I presume. As usual, it was my presence that brought on this punishment. Intelligence thinks no, that this raid was already scheduled, says Hamish. Now Plutarch's voice comes up, calm but forceful. The voice of a head game maker used to calling the shots under pressure. There's a light blue warehouse, three down from you. It's got a bunker in the far north corner. Can you get there? We'll do our best, says Boggs. Plutarch must be in everyone's ear because my bodyguards and crew are getting up. My eye instinctively searches for Gale and sees that he's on his feet, apparently unharmed. You got maybe 45 seconds to the next wave, says Plutarch. I give a grunt of pain as my right leg takes the weight of my body, but I keep moving. No time to examine the injury. Better not to look now, anyway. Fortunately, I have on shoes that Cinna designed. They grip the asphalt on contact and spring free of it on release. I'd be hopeless in that ill-fitting pair that Thirteen assigned to me. Boggs has the lead, but no one else passes me. Instead, they match my pace, protecting my sides, my back. I force myself into a sprint as the seconds tick away. We pass the second gray warehouse and run along a dirt-brown building. Up ahead, I see the faded blue facade. Home of the bunker. We've just reached another alley. Need only to cross it to arrive at the door when the next wave of bombs begins. I instinctively dive into the alley and roll across toward the blue wall. This time, it's Gale who throws himself over me to provide one layer of protection from the bombing. It seems to go on longer this time, but we're farther away. I shift onto my side and find myself looking directly into Gale's eyes. For an instant, the world recedes and there is just his flushed face, his pulse visible at his temple, his lips slightly parted as he tries to catch his breath. You all right? He asks, his words nearly drowned out by an explosion. Yeah, I don't think they've seen me, I answer. I mean, they're not following us. No, they've targeted something else, says Gale. I know, but there's nothing back there, but... The realization hits us both at the same time. The hospital. Instantly, Gale's up and shouting to the others, They're targeting the hospital! Not your problem, says Plutarch firmly. Get to the bunker! But there's nothing there but wounded, I say. Katniss! I hear the warning note in Hamish's voice and I know what's coming. Don't you even think about... I yank the earpiece free and let it hang from its wire. With that distraction gone, I hear another sound. Machine gun fire coming from the roof across the dirt brown warehouse across the alleyway. Someone is returning fire. Before anyone can stop me, I make a dash for the access ladder and begin to scale it. Climbing. One of the things I do best. Don't stop! I hear Gale behind me. Then there's the sound of his boot on someone's face. If it belongs to Boggs, Gale's going to pay for it dearly later on. I make the roof and drag myself onto the tar. I stop long enough to pull Gale up beside me, and we take off for the roll of machine gun nests on the street side of the warehouse. 
Each looks to be manned by a few rebels. We skid into a nest with a pair of soldiers, hunched down behind a barrier. It's Borgs, now you're up here! To my left, I see Paler behind one of the guns, looking at us quizzically. I try to be evasive without flat-out lying. Oh, he knows where we are, all right. Paler laughs. I bet he does! You've been trained in these? She slaps the stock of her gun. I have, in 13, says Gale. But I'd rather use my own weapons. Yes, we've got our bows. I hold up mine, then realize how decorative it must seem. It's more deadly than it looks. Yeah, it would have to be, says Paler. All right, we expect at least three more waves. They've got, they've got to drop their sight shields before they release the bombs. That's our chance. You stay low. I position myself to shoot from one knee. Better start with fire, says Gale. I nod and pull an arrow from my right sheath. If we miss our targets, these arrows will land somewhere. Probably the warehouses across the street. A fire can be put out, but the damage an explosive can do could be irreparable. Suddenly, they appear in the sky. Two blocks down, maybe a hundred yards above us. Seven small bombers in a V formation. Geese! I yell at Gale. He'll know exactly what I mean. During migration season, when we hunt fowl, we've developed a system of dividing the birds so we don't both target the same ones. I get the far side of the V, Gale takes the near, and we alternate shots at the front bird. There's no time for further discussion. I estimate the lead time on the hover planes and let my arrow fly. I catch the inside wing of one, causing it to burst into flames. Gale just misses the point plane. A fire blooms on the empty warehouse roof across the street from us. He swears under his breath. The hover plane I hit swerves out of formation, but still releases its bombs. It doesn't disappear, though. Neither does the one I assume was hit by gunfire. The damage must prevent the sight shield from reactivating. Good shot, says Gale. I wasn't even aiming for that one, I mutter. I'd set my sights on the plane in front of it. They're faster than we think. Positions! Paler shouts. The next wave of hover planes is appearing already. Fire's now good, Gale says. I nod and we both load explosive-tipped arrows. Those warehouses across the way look deserted anyway. As the planes sweep silently in, I make another decision. I'm standing, I shout to Gale and raise to my feet. This is the position I get the best accuracy from. I lead earlier and score a direct hit on the point plane, blasting a hole in its belly. Gale blows the tail off a second. It flips and crashes into the street, setting off a series of explosions as its cargo goes off. Without warning, a third V formation unveils. This time, Gale squarely hits the point plane. I take the wing off the second bomber, causing it to spin into the one behind it. Together they collide into the fourth and the warehouse across the street. A fourth goes down from the gunfire. All right, that's it, Paler says. Flames and heavy black smoke from the wreckage obscures our view. Did they hit the hospital? Yeah, they must have, she says grimly. As I hurry toward the ladders at the far end of the warehouse, the sight of Misala and one of the insects emerging from behind an air duct surprises me. I thought they'd be hunkered down the alley. All right, they're growing on me says Gale. I scramble down a ladder. When my feet hit the ground, I find a bodyguard, Cressida, and the other insect waiting. I expect resistance, but Cressida just waves me toward the hospital. She's yelling, I don't care, Plutarch, just give me five more minutes. Not one to question a free pass, I take off down the street. Oh no, 
I whisper as I catch sight of the hospital. What used to be the hospital. I move past the wounded, past the burning plane wrecks, fixated on the disaster ahead of me. People screaming, running about frantically but unable to help. The bombs have collapsed the hospital roof and set the building on fire, effectively trapping the patients within. A group of rescuers has assembled, trying to clear a path to the inside. But I already know what they will find. If the crushing debris and flames don't get them, the smoke did. Gale's at my shoulder. The fact that he does nothing only confirms my suspicions. Miners don't abandon an accident until it's hopeless. Come on, Katniss. Hamish says they can get a hovercraft in for us now. But I can't seem to move. Why would they do that? Why would they target people who are already dying? I ask him. Scare the others off. Prevent the wounded from seeking help, says Gale. Those people that you met, they were expendable. Just snow, anyway. If the capital wins... What'll it do with a bunch of damaged slaves? I remember all those years in the woods, listening to Gale rant against the capital. Me, not paying close attention, wondering why he even bothered to dissect its motives. Why thinking like our enemy would ever matter? Clearly, it could have mattered today. When Gale questioned the existence of the hospital, he was not thinking of disease, but this because he never underestimates the cruelty of those that we face. I slowly turn my back to the hospital and find Cressida, flanked by the insects, standing a couple of yards in front of me. Her manner is unrattled. Cool, even. Katniss, she says, President Snow just had them air the bombing live. Then he made an appearance to say that this is his way of sending a message to the rebels. What about you? Would you like to tell the rebels anything? Yes, I whisper. The red blinking light on one of the cameras catches my eye. I know I'm being recorded. Yes, I say more forcefully. Everyone is drawing away from me. Gale, Cressida, the insects, giving me the stage. But I stay focused on the red light. I want to tell the rebels that I am alive. That I'm right here in District 8, where the capital has just bombed a hospital full of unarmed men, women, and children. There will be no survivors. The shock I've been feeling begins to give way to fury. I want to tell people that if you think for one second that the capital is going to treat us fairly if there's a ceasefire, you're deluding yourself. Because you know who they are and what they do. My hands go out automatically as if to indicate the whole horror around me. This is what they do! And we must fight back! I'm moving in toward the camera now, carried forward by my rage. President Snow says that he's sending a message. And I got one for him. You can torture us and bomb us and burn our district to the ground, but you see that? One of the cameras follows as I point to the planes burning on the roof of the warehouse across from us. The capital seal on a wing glows clearly through the flames. Fire is catching! I'm shouting now, determined that he will not miss a word. And if we burn, you burn with us! My last words 
hang in the air. I feel suspended in time, held aloft in a cloud of heat that generates not from my surroundings, but from my own being. Cut! Cressida's voice snaps me back to reality, extinguishes me. She gives me a nod of approval. That's a wrap. A dark turn in this chapter. Not altogether unexpected, as we've seen from the Capitol, that they are willing to do terrible things. And this is once again, I think, the distinction that I draw when I look between the two presidents, President Snow and President Coyne. This is what I see. Is... <laughs> when when I think of um, what President Coyne has to be, I look at President Coyne and I think, harsh? Absolutely. Um, someone with a game plan that does require other people to be involved? Yes. But, but, this is what President Snow does. And I think there are plenty of times where it's okay to sort of compare one against the other and say, no, both bad. You know, both both have to take a look and, uh, you know, examine these things. And frankly, as I've mentioned before, President Coyne doesn't get off the hook for this. This is not something that that, that is, the, the intent of this message is not, yeah, so just, you know, sort of let her work. That's not it. Always, always, um, <laughs> always insist that leadership is better. However, when it comes down to divided loyalties between two different leaders, and one of them is bombing a hospital, that much keeps it pretty clear for me. So, there you go, folks. Uh, and as we roll on into our next thing, I want to thank you all very much for being here. And with that, let's talk okay. a spot of review, shall we? I think it's high time we do. Everyone, last week, Chapters 6 and 7. Chapter 6. Haymitch is back. Great. Great. Haymitch is back. Um, <laughs> they need to make some decisions about what to do next. Because Katniss, um, as a bit of like from, this, from top to bottom review, Katniss, after having survived the brutal hunger games enforced by the capital upon the 12 districts that rebelled against the capital itself uh, 75 years prior, now... A rebellion is forming against the capital once again, and Katniss finds herself kind of at the forefront of this, as a as a poster child for it, as the face of this rebellion. However, as of the previous chapters, we find that Katniss is not much of an actress. Katniss is not much of an actor, and so as they are sort of reeling from the fact that, hey, okay, good, we've got Katniss, we've got her in District 13, she's safe, she's willing to join up, she's got some demands, like trying to keep PETA safe once the uh, rebellion has won, if that is what happens, we've got her, we're good to go, let's set the cameras rolling. 
Katniss is a dud on camera, right? She's no good. Um, Hamish calls together a uh, a brain trust meeting, uh, a brainstorming meeting to try and figure out what it is that makes Katniss shine, because she has shone before, but why not now? Well, the answer is improvisation. She's no good with a script is the thing. So they need to get her out in the field doing things uh, that, that are sort of like, you know, being, being in the action, essentially. So... They give her a camera crew. They give her a special bow designed by um, by, by our friend Beatty, and they send her out into the field with a team uh, of of bodyguards. They send her with Gale, and uh, they send her to District Eight. As we get into that next chapter, um, let's see, Chapter Seven. The intent is for it just to be a fairly quiet um, uh, sort of give give Katniss a chance and see. Now I've. <laughs> Now I want to say, not Katniss, but a slightly different name, because I've got Hogwarts Hippie's name up on my screen here. Um, <laughs> I hope you won't mind Hogwarts Hippie if I do slip up and call Katniss something ever so slightly different. Um, this is a uh, this is supposed to be a fairly relaxed um, experience. It's not supposed to be high intensity. There's not supposed to be any battles going on. There was a raid, but it's supposed to be over now. District 8. They bring Katniss in with her camera crew, with Gale, with her bodyguard, and Katniss is just supposed to make an appearance and show the people she's still alive, she's still active, she's still fighting. But, as she wanders through this improvised hospital, greeting these people who are wounded, some many people have lost loved ones, the sirens go off again, and there is another air raid coming from the capital. Uh, as it bombs its way through, it bombs the hospital building, and uh, Katniss, in the midst of all this, does one of the things she does best, which is to fight. She manages with uh, some of the ex exploding arrows that she was given by Beatty. Um, she and Gale manage to take down a couple of these uh, these capital birds. Not literal birds, obviously, but these capital hovercraft. Um and in the end here, with the hospital blown up behind her and uh, beside her, uh, the burning wrecks of some of these capital airships, Katniss gives a little speech. No script, just Katniss speaking from the heart. Um, the message of which essentially being, look at what they do. Look at what the Capitol does. There were women, there were children, there were men, everyone unarmed were, they were inside this hospital that the Capitol just bombed. Look what they do. We have to fight back. The fire is catching, I'm here. And President Snow, I've got a message. If we burn, you burn with us. Let's see how long it takes for this fire to catch.
Chapter 8 Boggs appears and gets a firm lock on my arm, but I'm not planning on running now. I look over at the hospital, just in time to see the rest of the structure give way, and the fight goes out of me. All those people, the hundreds of wounded, the relatives, the medics from 13, they're no more. I turn back to Boggs, see the swelling on his face left by Gale's boot. I'm no expert, but I'm pretty sure his nose is broken. His voice is more resigned than angry, though. Back to the landing strip. I obediently take a step forward and wince as I become aware of the pain behind my right knee. The adrenaline rush that overrode the sensation has passed, and my body parts join in a chorus of complaints. I'm banged up and bloody, and someone seems to be hammering on my left temple from inside my skull. Boggs quickly examines my face and then scoops me up and jogs for the runway. Halfway there, I puke on his bulletproof vest. It's hard to tell because he's short of breath, but I think he sighs. A small hovercraft, different from the one that transported us here, waits on the runway. The second my team's on board, we take off. No comfy seats and windows this time. We seem to be in some sort of cargo craft. Boggs does emergency first aid on people to hold them until we get back to 13. I want to take off my vest since I've got a fair amount of vomit on it as well, but it's too cold to think about it. I lie on the floor with my head on Gail's lap. The last thing I remember is Boggs spreading out a couple of burlap sacks over me. When I wake up, I'm warm and patched up in my old bed in the hospital. My mother's there, checking my vital signs. How do you feel? Little beat up, but all right, I say. No one even told us you were going until you were gone, she says. I feel a pang of guilt. When your family's had to send you off twice to the Hunger Games, this isn't the kind of detail you should overlook. I'm sorry. They weren't expecting the attack. I was just supposed to be visiting the patients, I explain. Next time, I'll have them cleared with you. Katniss, no one clears anything with me, she says. It's true. Even I don't. Not since my father died. Why pretend? Well, I'll have him notify you anyway. On the bedside table is a piece of shrapnel they removed from my leg. The doctors are more concerned with the damage my brain might have suffered from the explosions, since my concussion hadn't fully healed to begin with. But I don't have double vision or anything, and I can think clearly enough. I've slept right through the late afternoon and night, and I'm just starving. My breakfast is disappointingly small. Just a few cubes of bread soaking in warm milk. I've been called down to an early morning meeting by command. I start to get up and realize they plan to roll my hospital bed directly there. I want to walk, but that's out, so I negotiate my way to a wheelchair. I feel fine, really, except for my head and my leg and the soreness from the bruises and the nausea that hit a couple minutes after I ate. Maybe the wheelchair's a good idea. As they wheel me down, I begin to get uneasy about what I will face. Gail and I directly disobeyed orders yesterday, and Boggs has the injury to prove it. Surely there will be repercussions, but will they go so far as coin annulling our agreement for the victor's immunity? Have I stripped PETA of what little protection I could give him? 
When I get to command, the only ones who have arrived are Cressida, Masala, and the insects. Masala beams and says, There's our little star. And the others are smiling so genuinely I can't help but smile in return. They impressed me in eight, following me onto the roof during the bombing, making Plutarch back off so they could get the footage they wanted. They more than do their work. They take pride in it. Like Cinna. I have a strange feeling that if we were in the arena together, I would pick them as allies. Cressida, Masala, and... And... I have to stop calling you the insects, I burst out to the cameramen. I explain how I didn't know their names, but their suits suggested the shelled creatures. The comparison doesn't seem to bother them. Even without the camera shells, they strongly resemble each other. Same sandy hair, red beards, and blue eyes. The one with close-bitten nails introduces himself as Castor, and the other, who's his brother, as Pollux. I wait for Pollux to say hello, but he just nods. At first, I think he's shy, or a man of few words, but something tugs on me. The position of his lips, the extra effort he takes to swallow. And I know before Castor tells me, Pollux is an Avox. They've cut out his tongue, and he will never speak again and I no longer have to wonder what made him risk everything to help bring down the capital. As the room fills, I brace myself for a less congenial reception. But the only people who register any kind of negativity are Haymitch, who's always out of sorts, and a sour-faced Fulvia Cardu. Boggs wears a flesh-colored plastic mask from his upper lip to his brow. I was right about the broken nose, so his expression is hard to read. Coin and Gale are in the midst of some exchange that seems positively chummy. When Gale slides into the seat next to my wheelchair, I say, Making new friends? His eyes flicker to the president and back. Well, one of us has to be accessible. He touches my temple gently. How do you feel? They must have served stewed garlic and squash for the breakfast vegetable. The more people who gather, the stronger the fumes are. My stomach turns, and the lights suddenly seem too bright. Kinda rocky, I say. How are you? Fine. Dug out a couple of pieces of shrapnel. No big deal. Coin calls the meeting to order. Our airtime assault has officially launched. For any of you who missed yesterday's twenty hundred broadcasts of our first propo, or the 17 reruns BT has managed on the air since, we will begin by replaying it. Replaying it? So they not only got usable footage, they've already slapped together a propo and aired it repeatedly. My palms grow moist in anticipation of seeing myself on television. What if I'm still awful? What if I'm as stiff and pointless as I was in the studio and they've just given up on getting anything better? Individual screens slide up from the table, the lights dim slightly, and a hush falls over the room. At first, my screen is black. Then a tiny spark flickers in the center. It blossoms, spreads, silently eating up the blackness until the entire frame is ablaze in a fire so real and intense I imagine I can feel the heat emanating from it. The image of my Mockingjay pin emerges, glowing red. The deep, resonant voice that haunts my dreams begins to speak. Claudius Templesmith, the official announcer of the Hunger Games, says, Katniss 
suddenly, there I am, replacing the Mockingjay, standing there before the real flames and smoke of District 8. I want to tell the rebels I'm alive, and that I'm right here in District 8, where the Capitals just bombed a hospital full of unarmed men, women, and children. There'll be no survivors. Cut to the hospital collapsing in on itself. The desperation of the onlookers as I continue in voiceover. I want to tell people that if you think for one second the capital will treat us fairly if there's a ceasefire, you're deluding yourself. Because you know who they are and what they do. Back to me now, my hands lifting up to indicate the outrage around me. This is what they do, and we must fight back. Now comes a truly fantastic montage of the battle. The initial bombs falling, us running, being blown to the ground. A close-up of my wound, which looks good and bloody. Scaling the roof, diving into the nests, and then some amazing shots of the rebels, Gale, and mostly me, 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 knocking those planes out of the sky. Smash cut back to me moving in on the camera. President Snow says he's sending us a message. Well, I got one for him. You can torture us and bomb us and burn our districts to the ground. But you see that? We're with the camera, tracking the planes burning on the roof of the warehouse. Tight on the Capitol seal on the wing, which melts back into the image of my face, shouting at the president, Fire is catching! And if we burn, you burn with us! Flames engulf the screen again. Superimposed on them in black, solid letters are the words, If we burn, you burn with us. The words catch fire and the whole screen burns to blackness. There's a moment of silent relish, and then applause followed by demands to see it again. Coin indulgently hits the replay button, and this time, since I know what will happen, I try to pretend I'm watching this on my television at home in the scene. An anti-capital statement. There's never been anything like it on television. Not in my life, anyway. By the time the screen burns to black a second time, I need to know more. Did they play it all over Pan Am? Did they see it in the Capitol? Not in the Capitol, says Plutarch. We couldn't override their system, although Beatty's working on it. But in all the districts, we even got it to two, which may be more valuable than the Capitol at this point in the game. Is Claudius Templesmith with us? I ask. This gives Plutarch a good laugh. Only his voice. But that's ours for the taking. We didn't even have to do any special editing. He said that actual line in your first games. He slaps the hand on a table. What say we give another round of applause to Cressida, her amazing team, and, of course, our on-camera talent. I clap, too, until I realize I'm the on-camera talent, and maybe it's obnoxious that I'm applauding for myself. But no one's paying attention. I can't help noticing the strain on Fulvia's face, though. I think how hard this must be for her, watching Haymitch's idea succeed under Cressida's direction, when Fulvia's studio approach was such a flop. Coin seems to have reached the end of her tolerance for self-congratulation. Yes, well deserved. The result is more than we hoped for, but I do have to question the wide margin of risk you were willing to operate within. I know the raid was unforeseen. However, given the circumstances, I think we should discuss the decision to send Katniss into actual combat. The decision? To send me into combat? 
then she doesn't know that I flagrantly disregarded orders. Ripped out my earpiece, gave my bodyguards the slip. What else have they kept from her? It was a tough call, says Plutarch, furrowing his brow. But the general consensus is that we weren't going to get anything worth using if we locked her up in a bunker somewhere every time a gun went off. And you're all right with that, asks the president. Gail has to kick me under the table before I realize that she's talking to me. Oh, yeah, I'm completely all right with it. I felt good. Doing something for a change. Well, let's just be a bit more judicious with her exposure, especially now that the Capitol knows what she can do, says Coyne. There's a rumble of assent from around the table. No one has ratted out Gale and me. Not Plutarch, whose authority we ignored. Not Boggs, with his broken nose. Not the insect we let into fire. Not Haymitch. No, wait a minute. Haymitch is giving me a deadly smile and saying sweetly, Oh, yeah, we wouldn't want to lose our little Mockingjay when she's finally begun to sing. I make a note to myself not to end up alone in a room with him, because he's clearly having vengeful thoughts over that stupid earpiece. So, what else do you have planned? says the president. Plutarch nods to Cressida, who consults a clipboard. We've got some terrific footage of Katniss at the hospital in eight. There should be another propo in there with the theme, Because You Know Who They Are and What They Do. We'll focus on Katniss interacting with the patients, particularly the children, the bombing of the hospital, and the wreckage. Masala's cutting that together. We're also working on a Mockingjay piece. Highlights some of Katniss's best moments intercut with scenes of the rebel uprisings and war footage. We'll call that one Fire is Catching. And then Fulvia came up with a really brilliant idea. Fulvia's mouthful of sour grapes expression is startled right off her face. But she recovers. Well, I don't know how brilliant it is, but I was thinking we could do a series of propos called We Remember. In each one, we would feature one of the dead tributes. Little Rue from Eleven, or Old Mags from Four. The idea that we could each target a district with a very personal piece. A tribute to your tributes, as it were, says Plutarch. That is brilliant, Fulvia, I say sincerely. It's the perfect way to remind people why they're fighting. I think it could work, she says. I thought we might use Finnick to intro and narrate the spots if there was interest in them. Frankly, I don't see how we could have too many we remember propos, says Coin. Can you start producing them today? Of course, says Fulvia, obviously mollified by the response to her idea. Cressida has smoothed everything over in a creative department with her gesture praised Fulvia for what is, in fact, a really good idea, and cleared the way to continue her own on-air depiction of the Mockingjay. What's interesting is that Plutarch seems to have no need to share in the credit. All he wants is for the airtime assault to work. I remember that Plutarch is a head game-maker, not a member of the crew. Not a piece in the games. Therefore, his worth is not defined by a single element, but by the overall success of the production. If we win the war... That's when Plutarch will take his bow, and I expect his reward. The president sends me back off to the hospital, while everyone else gets to work. We laugh a little about the cover-up. Gail says no one wanted to look bad by admitting they couldn't control us. 
I'm kinder, saying they probably didn't want to jeopardize the chance of taking us out again now that they've gotten some decent footage. Both things are probably true. Gale has to go meet Beatty down in the special weaponry department, so I doze off. It seems like I've only shut my eyes for a few minutes, but when I open them, I flinch at the sight of Haymitch, sitting a couple feet from my bed. Waiting. Possibly for several hours, if the clock is right. I think about hollering for a witness, but I'm going to have to face him sooner or later. Haymitch leans forward and dangles something on a thin white wire in front of my nose. It's hard to focus on, but I'm pretty sure what it is. He drops it onto the sheets. That is your earpiece. I'll give you exactly one more chance to wear it. If you remove it from your ear again, I'll have you fitted with this. He holds up some sort of metal headgear that I instantly name the head shackle. It's an alternative unit. Locks around your skull and under your chin till it's open with a key. And I'll have the only key. And if, for some reason, you're clever enough to disable it... Hamish dumps the head shackle on the bed and whips out a tiny silver chip. I'll authorize them to surgically implant this transmitter into your ear so I can speak to you 24 hours a day. Haymitch in my head, full time. Horrifying. I'll keep the earpiece in, I mutter. Excuse me! I'll keep the earpiece in, I say, loud enough to wake up half the hospital. Are you sure? Because I'm equally happy with any other three options, he tells me. I'm sure, I say. I scrunch up the earpiece wire protectively in my fist and fling the head shackle back in his face with my free hand, but he catches it easily. Probably was expecting me to throw it. Anything else? Haymitch rises to go. Well, I was waiting. I ate your lunch. My eyes take in the empty stew bowl and tray on my bed table. I'm going to report you, I mumble into my pillow. You do that, sweetheart. He goes out, safe in the knowledge that I'm not the reporting kind. I want to go back to sleep, but I'm restless. Images from yesterday begin to flood into the present. The bombing, the fiery plane crashes, the faces of the wounded who no longer exist. I imagine death from all sides. The last moment before seeing a shell hit the ground, feeling the wing blown from my plane and the dizzying nosedive into oblivion, the warehouse roof falling down on me while I'm pinned helplessly to my cot. Things I saw, in person or on tape. Things I caused with a pull of my bowstring. Things I'll never be able to erase from my memory. At dinner, Finnick brings down his tray to my bed so that we can watch the newest propo together on television. He was assigned quarters on my old floor, but he has so many mental relapses he basically still lives in the hospital. The rebels air the because-you-know-who-they-are-and-what-they-do propo that Masala edited. The footage is intercut with short studio clips of Gale, Boggs, and Cressida describing the incident. It's hard to watch my reception in the hospital in H since I know what's coming. When the bombs rain down on the roof, I bury my face in my pillow, looking up again at a brief clip of me at the end, 
after all the victims are dead. At least Finnick doesn't applaud or act all happy when it's done. He just says, People should know what happened. And now they do. Let's turn it off, Finnick, before they run it again, I urge him. But as Finnick's hand moves toward the remote control, I cry, Wait! The Capitol is introducing a special segment, and something about it looks familiar. Yes, it's Caesar Flickerman. And I can guess who his guest will be. Peter's physical transformation shocks me. The healthy, clear-eyed boy I saw a few days ago has lost at least 15 pounds and developed a nervous tremor in his hands. They've still got him groomed, but underneath the paint that cannot cover the bags under his eyes and the fine clothes that cannot conceal the pain he feels when he moves, he's a person badly damaged. My mind reels trying to make sense of it. I just saw him four, no, five, I think it was five days ago. How has he deteriorated so rapidly? What could they possibly have done to him in such a short time? And then it hits me. I replay in my mind as much as I can of his first interview with Caesar, searching for anything that would place it in time. There's nothing. They could have taped that interview a day or two after I blew up the arena and then done whatever they wanted to him ever since. Oh, Peter, I whisper. Caesar and Peter have a few empty exchanges before Caesar asks him about the rumors that I'm taping propos for the districts. They're using her, obviously, says Peter. To whip up the rebels. I doubt that she even really knows what's going on in the war. What's at stake? Is there anything that you'd like to tell her? asks Caesar. There is, says Peter. He looks directly into the camera, right into my eyes. Don't be a fool, Katniss. Think for yourself. They've turned you into a weapon that could be instrumental in the destruction of humanity. If you've got any real influence, use it to put the brakes on this thing. Use it to stop the war before it's too late. Ask yourself, do you really trust the people that are walking with? Do you really know what's going on? And if you don't, find out. Black screen. Seal of Pan Am. Show over. Finnick presses the button on the remote that kills the power. In a minute, people will be here to do damage control on Peter's condition and the words that came out of his mouth. I'll need to repudiate them, but the truth is, I don't trust the rebels, or Plutarch, or Coin. I'm not confident that they tell me the truth. I won't be able to conceal this. Footsteps are approaching. Finnick grips me hard by the arms. We didn't see it. What? I ask. We didn't see Peter, only the propos on eight. Then we turned the set off because the images upset you. Got it? I nod. Finish your dinner. I pull myself together enough so that when Plutarch and Fulvia enter, I've got a mouthful of bread and cabbage. Finnick is talking about how well Gale came across on camera. We congratulate them on the propo. Make it clear it was so powerful we turned it off right afterward. They look relieved. They believe us. No one mentions Peter. 
There we go, my good folks. <laughs> I hope all is well. Um, everybody, how are you doing? How are you feeling today? Um, we have got a, well, a devastating little revelation here. PETA is not as well as he looked. Not at first. Four or five days ago, they aired that interview, but Katniss thinks back on it and realizes... <sighs> There's nothing that would have indicated they necessarily filmed that interview from that they released five days ago. Nothing to indicate they actually recorded that live. That could have been recorded weeks ago. And since then, who knows what has happened to PETA. Hawkward Zippy says, I think I'll bring tissues every stream for the remainder of this book. And you're probably right to do so, Hogwarts Hippie. Um, indeed. Uh, I want to say thank you all for joining me here. Thank you for sticking with me through our very regular internet issues. And I want to say an especial thank you to all of you grand, grand folks who have contributed over on the PayPal. Uh, if you are looking to help out, if you're looking to uh, get me a new router so that when I stream... I hit, the, I hit the start stream button and my stream doesn't stop until I press the button as opposed to four or five times in the middle and then maybe cuts me off an hour early. Who knows? Who knows what it could be? Every night's a different adventure. If you don't want to be like that anymore, um, go ahead, head over to my link tree. Uh, you can find that link tree slash sidecar stories, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories. And tonight that is especially handy because I've got the PayPal link up over there. Thank you all very much. Uh, I want to say thank you so much to Hogwarts Hippie, to uh, Sparkle Lovegood, to Chase, and to Sander. Um, Y'all have already got me um, past my short goal. My long goal is $300. I'm at $182.08 right now. Thank you so very much. The long goal means I will be able to get the best router suggested by my, uh, by my tech producer, Sander. I thank you a bunch, Sander, and uh, to all of you good folks who have donated here. Um, Again, nothing crazy. This is just one. Basically, this is the only router I will need. <laughs> I will. I won't need to upgrade again until you know I have a, a, a whole team of people working out of the same building. In which case, it's not going to be here in my apartment. Oh boy, here they come. Here they come. The self-promotion police. <laughs> That's what's happening in the back of my mind, by the way. Anytime I talk about like, hey, come check out the Patreon or anything like that, it's like, come on, hey, Sam, wrap it up, wrap it up. <laughs> Birdie Spade says, well, I feel delightful knowing that a sterilization tech makes me sound like a super spy. Hey, it does though, Sander. Sander. Proteus. <laughs> Courier. Not Sander. Courier. Um, but uh, no, it definitely does. I, I think it's just the, the way that you write certain things. But uh, yeah, no, it's also, hey, it's also super important. Sanders says, uh, you won't need to upgrade to the non-Wi-Fi version if, if you had a team of four. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, Hogwarts Hippie says, will you update us next week? We want to know what, uh, we want you to have, oh, we want you to have what you need with minimal effort. Um, I will certainly, and I actually just, now that I'm looking at this thing, I discovered a new button that I didn't see before, um, uh, for a fundraise thing. So I guess in the future, I'll be able to actually set like a specific goal. And so that y'all will be able to see like exactly where I'm at toward that. Um, I like this. I like this. Cool, cool, cool. Um, and, uh, I think, yeah, yeah, excellent. Um, folks. Thank you so very much for joining me here today. We're going to roll on into our second and final chapter of the evening, but after that, we have got some sound bites to do. We've got our, our wrap-up sound bites for the month. Uh, I believe, I want to say we've got, 
We, we, I mean, we've definitely got Elantris. I don't know if we've got more than that. I'm going to have to double check. I th I want to say we recorded all the rest of them. I think that we did. I think we were, we're good for the rest of them for this month. But uh, we've definitely got some Elantris to read. Um, uh, Hogwarts Hippie says, have you given any further thought as to whether you'll read the prequel? Um, yes, Hogwarts Hippie. I really would like to do that. Um, this is this is one of those series where um, people have enjoyed it enough that I don't feel the need to take a vote, and I enjoyed it enough that I don't need to sort of like rush on to the next thing um, and leave this one behind. Um, I've I have not heard really anything about it yet. Um, whereas like with the Harry Potter prequel, I had been hearing kind of overtly negative stuff. I have still not read it for myself. I'm not sure that I ever will. Uh, trans rights are human rights, everyone. A quick reminder that I will be doing as, as long as that continues to be relevant. Um, but uh, yeah, for this one, I think it, it sounds like a cool one. It sounds like a cool idea. And I really enjoy this series. So yeah, I definitely see myself doing it. Um, when? That's a different question. But uh, soon. Soon. Yeah, the, the Cursed Child. I Or I guess it's not a prequel, is it? It's a sequel. I meant sequel. Oop. Oop. <laughs> Thanks, Gwen Doug. Uh, yeah, Cursed Child. It just was not something that uh, I, I kept hearing. It wasn't great. That is what I was hearing. Now, part of that is, of course, like the nostalgia, the challenges of nostalgia. But hey, we'll leave it be for right now. Okay, folks, let's talk a bit of review and head straight on into our next chapter. Uh, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. If you want to find out more about the channel, use the link tree that just popped up in chat. That's the link to follow and the link to share in our last chapter. Katniss is still reeling from what happened back in District 8. She was supposed to go there, just make an appearance, make sure that people knew that she was still alive, that she is still actively part of the Rebellion. But that's when the next air raid comes in. The bombers from the Capitol hit District 8, uh, in spite of the fact that it is it had just hit District 8 before, and not only that, but it hits the makeshift hospital as well. They're all unarmed. It's just the wounded from District 8 gathered in this old warehouse with a cross painted onto it. Gail said it might not be a good idea to gather all of them in the same place, and he was right. The capital strikes killing essentially this whole makeshift hospital full of, of uh, the wounded and their relatives. Katniss does fight back and manages to take down a couple of these bombers, these hovercraft bombers from the capital. Uh, she and Gale fight back. Um, she does break some of her orders, but she manages to take a couple of these down. At the end, she gives this grand speech um, that turns out to be exactly what they need for the propos. So, she gets back into... Um, uh, she gets back into District 13, and apparently no one has told President Coyne about uh, the fact that she broke her orders, but they got some great footage. The only person... The only people who don't seem to be too happy are Fulvia Cardu, who is quickly placated because uh, it turns out that, you know, whatever she ha can contribute to this is sort of what her value is in District 13, and if they're not going with her idea, which is to do studio versions, then... She might be kind of hosed here, value-wise, but she had a pretty great idea. Do some other propos, which don't need to involve Katniss. In fact, they're going to uh, bring in uh, Finnick for it. Tributes to the individual tributes of other districts. So a full piece on 
Rue, a full piece on... Uh, and they gave more examples, and I cannot find them, but uh, I'm sure a, a full piece on Chaff as well. Uh, basically, full pieces on all these other individuals who um, who were part of the games. Basically, remind the other districts why they are fighting. A good reminder of why they are fighting. And um, so, they get to work on those. Katniss passes out again, takes a nap, and wakes up to find the other person who was disgruntled after the rousing success, uh, filming-wise, of the District 8 run. It's Haymitch. Haymitch is livid that she took out her earpiece and basically just sort of ignored all of the instructions given to her. Um, he th threatens her with, like, implanting a piece so that he can talk to her at any hour of the day, and Katniss says, fine, I'll keep my earpiece in. Okay. As we move on... Uh, into the last part of the chapter, we find that the the proposal that they've put together, rousing success. And then a message comes on from the Capitol. It's an interview, once more, with um, Caesar Flickerman and Peta. But Peta looks drastically different from the last time. In this one, he looks 15 pounds lighter. He's clearly in pain. There's a tremor in his hands. He is in bad shape. And Katniss realizes that first interview might have been recorded a day or two after they first were taken out of the arena. And since then, even though she, she only saw the thing about five days ago, there could have been weeks since that first one was recorded in which who knows what they've been doing to PETA. Chapter 9 I stop trying to sleep after my first few attempts are interrupted by unspeakable nightmares. After that, I just lie still and do fake breathing whenever someone checks on me. In the morning, I'm released from the hospital and instructed to take it easy. Cressida asks me to record a few lines for a new Mockingjay promo. At lunch, I keep waiting for people to bring up Peter's appearance, but no one does. Someone must have seen it besides Finnick and me. I have training, but Gail's scheduled to work with Beatty on weapons or something, so I get permission to take Finnick into the woods. We wander around a while and then ditch our communicators under a bush. When we're a safe distance away, we sit and discuss Peter's broadcast. I haven't heard a word about it. No one's told you anything, Finnick says. I shake my head. He pauses before he asks... Not even Gale. I'm clinging to a shred of hope that Gale honestly knows nothing about Peter's message. But I have a bad feeling he does. Maybe he's trying to find a time to tell you privately. 
Maybe. I say. We stay silent so long that a buck wanders into range. I take it down with an arrow. Finnick calls it back to the fence. For dinner, there's minced venison in the stew. Gail walks me back to compartment E after we eat. When I ask him what's been going on, again, there's no mention of Peta. As soon as my mother and sister are asleep, I slip the pearl from the drawer and spend a second sleepless night, clutching it in my hand, replaying Peta's words in my head. Ask yourself, do you really trust the people that you're walking with? Do you really know what's going on? And if you don't, find out. Find out? What? From who? And how can Peter know anything except what the Capitol tells him? It's just a Capitol propo. More noise. But if Plutarch thinks it's just the Capitol line, why didn't he tell me about it? Why hasn't anyone let me or Finnick know? Under this debate lies the real source of my distress. Peter. What have they done to him, and what are they doing to him right now? Clearly, Snow did not buy the story that Peter and I knew nothing about the rebellion, and his suspicions have been reinforced now that I've come out as the Mockingjay. Peter can only guess about the rebel tactics, or make up things to tell his torturers. Lies, once discovered, would be severely punished. How abandoned by me he must feel. In his first interview, he tried to protect me from the capital and rebels alike, and not only have I failed to protect him, I've brought down more horrors upon him. Come morning, I stick my forearm into the wall and stare groggily at the day's schedule. Immediately after breakfast, I'm slated for production. In the dining hall, as I down my hot grain and milk and mushy beets, I spot a communicuff on Gail's wrist. When did you get that back? Soldier Hawthorne? I ask. Yesterday. You thought if I'm going to be in the field with you? Could be a backup system of communication, says Gail. No one has ever offered me a communicuff. I wonder, if I asked for one, would I get it? Well, one of us has to be accessible, I say with an edge to my voice. What does that mean? He says. Nothing. Just repeating what you said. I tell him, and I totally agree that the accessible one should be you. I just hope I still have got access to you as well. Our eyes lock, and I realize how furious I am with Gale. That I don't believe for a second he didn't see Peter's propo, and I feel completely betrayed that he didn't tell me about it. We know each other too well for him not to read my mood and guess what has caused it. Cadness. He begins. Already, the admission of guilt is in his tone. I grab my tray, cross to the deposit area, and slam the dishes onto the rack. By the time I'm in the hallway, he's caught up with me. Why didn't you say something? He asks, taking my arm. Why didn't I? I jerk my arm free. Why didn't you, Gail? And I did, by the way, when I asked you last night what had been going on. I'm sorry, all right. I didn't know what to do. I wanted to tell you, but everyone was afraid that seeing Peter's propo would make you sick. They were right. It did. But not quite as sick as you lying to me for coin. At that moment, his communicuff starts beeping. There she is. Better run. You've got things to tell her. 
For a moment, real hurt registers on his face, and then cold anger replaces it. He turns on his heel and goes. Maybe I've been too spiteful, not giving him enough time to explain. Maybe everyone is just trying to protect me by lying to me. I don't care. I'm sick of people lying to me for my own good. Because really, it's mostly for their own good. Lie to Katniss about the rebellion so she doesn't do anything crazy. Send her into the arena without a clue so we can fish her out. Don't tell her about Peter's propo because it might make her sick and it's hard enough to get a decent performance out of her as it is. I do feel sick. Heart sick. And too tired for a day of production. But I'm already at remake, so I go in. Today, I discover we will be returning to District 12. Cressida wants to do unscripted interviews with Gale and me throwing light on our demolished city. If you're both up for that, says Cressida, looking closely at my face. Count me in, I say. I stand, uncommunicative and stiff, a mannequin as my prep team dresses me, does my hair, dabs makeup on my face. Not enough to show, only enough to take the edges off the circles under my sleepless eyes. Boggs escorts me down to the hangar, but we don't talk beyond a preliminary greeting. I'm grateful to be spared another exchange about my disobedience in eight, especially since his mask looks so uncomfortable. At the last moment, I remember to send a message to my mother about my leaving 13, and stress that it won't be dangerous. We board a hovercraft for the short ride to 12, and I'm directed to a seat at a table where Plutarch, Gale, and Cressida are poring over a map. Plutarch's brimming with satisfaction as he shows me the before-after effects of the first couple of propos. The rebels, who were barely maintaining a foothold in several districts, have rallied. They've actually taken 3 and 11, the latter so crucial because it's Pan Am's main food supplier, and have made inroads in several other districts as well. Hopeful. Very hopeful indeed, says Plutarch. Fulvia is going to have the first round of We Remember spots ready tonight, so we can target the individual districts about their dead. Phoenix, absolutely marvelous. It's painful to watch, actually, says Cressida. He knew so many of them personally. That's what makes it so effective, says Plutarch. Straight from the heart. You're all doing beautifully. Coin couldn't be more pleased. Gale didn't tell them then about my pretending not to see Peta and my anger at their cover-up. But I guess it's too little too late because I still can't let it go. It doesn't matter. He's not speaking to me either. It's not until we land in the meadow that I realize Haymitch isn't among our company. When I ask Plutarch about his absence, he just shakes his head and says, He couldn't face it. Haymitch, not able to face something? Wanted a day off, more likely, I say. I think his actual words were, I couldn't face it without a bottle, says Plutarch. I roll my eyes, long out of patience for my mentor, his weakness for drink, and what he can or can't confront. But about five minutes after my return to Twelve, I'm wishing I had a bottle myself. I thought I'd come to terms with Twelve's demise. Heard of it, seen it from the air, and wandered through its ashes. So why does everything bring on a fresh pang of guilt? Was I simply too out of it before to fully register the loss of my world? 
Or is it the look on Gale's face as he takes in the destruction on foot that makes the atrocity feel brand new? Cressida directs the team to start with me at my old house. I ask her what she wants me to do. Whatever you feel like, she says. Standing back in the kitchen, I don't feel like doing anything. In fact, I find myself focusing up at the sky, the only roof left, because too many memories are drowning me. After a while, Cressida says, That's fine, Katniss. Let's move on. Gale doesn't get off so easily at his old address. Cressida films him in silence for a few minutes, but just as he pulls the one remnant of his previous life from the ashes, a twisted metal poker, she starts to question him about his family, his job, life in the seam. She makes him go back to the night of the firebombing and reenact it, starting at his house, working his way down across the meadow and through the woods to the lake. I straggle behind the film crew and the bodyguards, feeling their presence to be a violation of my beloved woods. This is a private place, a sanctuary already corrupted by the capital's evil. Even after we've left behind the charred stumps near the fence, we're still tripping over decomposing bodies. Do we have to record it for everyone to see? By the time we reach the lake, Gale seems to have lost his ability to speak. Everyone's dripping in sweat, especially Castor and Pollux in their insect shells. And Cressida calls for a break. I scoop up some handfuls of water from the lake, wishing I could dive in and surface alone and naked and unobserved. I wander around the perimeter for a while. When I come back around the little concrete house beside the lake, I pause in the doorway and see Gale propping the crooked poker he salvaged against the wall by the hearth. For a moment, I have an image of a lone stranger, sometime far in the future, wandering lost in the wilderness and coming upon this small place of refuge with the pile of split logs, the hearth, the poker, wondering how it came to be. Gale turns and meets my eyes and... I know he's thinking about our last meeting here. When we fought over whether or not to run away, if we had, would District 12 still be there? I think it would. But the capital would still be in control of Pan Am as well. Cheese sandwiches are passed around and we eat them in the shade of the trees. I intentionally sit at the far edge of the group, next to Pollux, so I don't have to talk. No one's talking much, really. In the relative quiet, the birds take back the woods. I nudge Pollux with my elbow and point out a small black bird with a crown. It hops to a new branch, momentarily opening its wings, showing off its white patches. Pollux gestures to my pin and raises his eyebrows questioningly. I nod, confirming it is a mockingjay. I hold up one finger to say, wait, I'll show you, and whistle a bird call. The Mockingjay cocks its head and whistles the call right back at me, and then to my surprise, Pollux whistles a few notes of his own. The bird answers him immediately. Pollux's face breaks into an expression of delight, and he has a series of melodic exchanges with the Mockingjay. My guess is it's the first conversation he's had in years. Music draws Mockingjays like blossoms do bees, and in a short while he's got a half dozen of them perching the branches over our head. He taps me on the arm and uses a twig to write a word in the dirt. Sing? Question mark. 
Usually I would decline, but it's kind of impossible to say no to Pollux, given the circumstances. Besides, the Mockingjay's song voices are different from their whistles, so I'd like him to hear them. So, before I actually think about what I'm doing, I sing Rue's four notes, the one that she used to signal the end of the workday in Eleven. The notes that ended up as background music to her murder. The birds don't know that. They pick up the simple phrase and bounce it back and forth between them in sweet harmony. Just as they did in the Hunger Games before the mutations broke through the trees, chased us into the cornucopia, and slowly gnawed Cato to a bloody pulp. Don't you hear a real song? I burst out. Anything to stop those memories. I'm on my feet, moving back into the trees, resting my hand on the rough trunk of a maple tree with a bird's perch. I have not sung The Hanging Tree out loud for ten years. Because it's forbidden. But I remember every word. I begin softly, sweetly, as my father did. Are you, are you, coming to the tree, where they strung up the man they say had murdered three? Strange things did happen here, no stranger it would be, if we met up at midnight in the hanging tree. The mocking jays begin to alter their songs as they become aware of my new offering. Are you, are you, coming to the tree, where the dead man called out for his love to flee? Strange things did happen here, no stranger it would be, if we met up at midnight in the hanging tree. I have the bird's attention now. In one more verse, surely they will have captured the melody, as it's simple and repeats four times with little variation. Are you, are you, coming to the tree, where I told you to run so we'd both be free? Strange things did happen here, no stranger it would be. If we met at midnight in the hanging tree. A hush in the trees. Just the rustle of leaves in the breeze. But no birds, mockingjay or other. Peter's right. They do fall silent when I sing. Just as they did for my father. Are you... Are you coming to the tree? Wear a necklace of rope side by side with me. Strange things did happen here, no stranger it would be. If we met up at midnight in the hanging tree. The birds are waiting for me to continue. But that's it. Last verse. In the stillness, I remember the scene. I was home from a day in the woods with my father, sitting on the floor with Prim, who was just a toddler, singing The Hanging Tree, making us necklaces out of scraps of old rope, like it said in the song, 
not knowing the real meaning behind the words. The tune was simple and easy to harmonize to, though, and back then I could memorize almost anything set to music after a round or two. Suddenly, my mother snatched the rope necklaces away and was yelling at my father. I started to cry because my mother never yelled, and then Prim was wailing and I ran outside to hide. As I had exactly one hiding spot in the meadow under a honeysuckle bush, my father found me immediately. He calmed me down and told me everything was fine, only we'd better not sing that song anymore. My mother just wanted me to forget it, so of course every word was immediately, irrevocably branded into my brain. We didn't sing it anymore, my father and I, or even speak of it. After he died, he... it used to come back to me a lot. Being older, I began to understand the lyrics. At the beginning, it sounds like a guy trying to get his girlfriend to secretly meet up with him at midnight. But it's an odd place for a tryst, a hanging tree, where a man was hung for murder. The murderer's lover must have had something to do with the killing, or maybe they were just going to punish her anyway, because his corpse called out for her to flee. That's weird, obviously, the talking corpse bit, but it's not until a third verse that the hanging tree begins to get unnerving. You realize the singer of the song is the dead murderer. He's still in the hanging tree, and even though he told his lover to flee, he keeps asking if she's coming to join him. The phrase, where I told you to run so we'd both be free, is the most troubling, because at first you think he's talking about when he told her to flee, presumably to safety. But then you wonder if he meant for her to run to him. To death. In the final stanza, it's clear that's what he's waiting for. His lover with her rope necklace hanging dead next to him in the tree. I used to think the murderer was the creepiest guy imaginable. Now, with a couple of trips to the Hunger Games under my belt, I decide not to judge him without knowing more details. Maybe his lover was already sentenced to death and he was trying to make it easier. To let her know he'd be waiting. Or maybe he thought that the place he was leaving her was really worse than death. Didn't I want to kill Peta with that syringe to save him from the capital? Was that really my only option? Probably not. But I couldn't think of another at the time. I guess my mother thought the whole thing was too twisted for a seven-year-old, though, especially one who made her own rope necklaces. It wasn't like hanging was something that only happened in the story. Plenty of people were executed that way in 12. You can bet she didn't want me singing it in front of my music class. She probably wouldn't like me doing it for Pollux, even, but at least I'm not... Wait. No, I'm wrong. As I glance sideways, I see Castor has been taping me. Everyone is watching me intently. And Pollux has tears running down his cheeks because no doubt my freaky song has dredged up some terrible incident in his life. Great. I sigh and lean back against the trunk. That's when the Mockingjays begin their rendition of The Hanging Tree. In their mouths, it's quite beautiful. Conscious of being filmed, I stand quietly until I hear Cressida call. Cut! Plutarch crosses to me, laughing. <laughs> Where do you come up with this stuff? No one would believe it if we made it up! 
He throws his arm around me and kisses me on top of the head with a loud smack. You're golden. I wasn't doing it for the cameras, I say. Lucky that they were on, then, he says. Come on, everybody, back to town. As we trudge back through the woods, I reach a boulder, and both Gail and I turn our heads in the same direction, like a pair of dogs catching a scent on the wind. Cressida notices and asks what lies that way. We admit, without acknowledging each other, it's our old hunting rendezvous place. She wants to see it, even after we tell her it's nothing, really. Nothing but a place where I was happy, I think. Our rock ledge overlooking the valley. Perhaps a little less green than usual, but the blackberry bushes hang heavy with fruit. Here began countless days of hunting and snaring, fishing and gathering, roaming together through the woods, unloading our thoughts while we filled our game bags. This was the doorway to both sustenance and sanity. And we were each other's key. There's no District 12 to escape from now. No peacekeepers to trick, no hungry mouths to feed. The capital took away all of that. And I'm on the verge of losing Gale as well. The glue of mutual need that bonded us so tightly together for all those years is melting away. Dark patches, not light, show in the spaces between us. How can it be that today, in the face of Twelve's horrible demise, we are too angry to even speak to each other? Gale, as good as lied to me, that was unacceptable, even if he was concerned about my well-being. His apology seemed genuine, though, and I threw it back in his face with an insult and made sure it stung. What is happening to us? Why are we always at odds now? It's all a muddle, but I feel somehow that if I went back to the root of our troubles, my actions would be at the heart of it all. Do I really want to drive him away? My fingers encircle a blackberry and pluck it from its stem. I roll it gently between my thumb and forefinger. Suddenly, I turn to him and toss it in his direction. And may the odds, I say. I throw it high enough he's got plenty of time to decide whether to knock it aside or accept it. Gale's eyes train on me, not the berry, but at the last moment he opens his mouth and catches it. He chews, swallows, and there's a long pause before he says, Be ever in your favor but he does say it. Cressida has us sit on the nook in the rocks, where it's impossible not to be touching, and coaxes us into talking about hunting. What drove us out into the woods? How we met? Favorite moments? We thaw, beginning to laugh a little as we relate mishaps with bees and wild dogs and skunks. When the conversation turns to how it felt to translate our skill with weapons to the bombing in eight, I stop talking. Gale just says, Long overdue. By the time we reach the town square, the afternoon's sinking into evening, I take Cressida to the rubble of the bakery and ask her to film something. The only emotion I can muster is exhaustion. Peter? This is your home. None of your family have been heard of since the bombing. Twelve is gone. And you're calling for a ceasefire. I look across the emptiness. There's no one left to hear you. 
As we stand before the lump of metal that was the gallows, Cressida asks if either of us have ever been tortured. In answer, Gale pulls off his shirt and turns his back to the camera. I stare at the lash marks, and again hear the whistling of the whip, see his bloody figure hanging unconscious by the wrists. I'm done, I announce. I'll meet you at the victor's village. Something for... for my mother. I guess I walked here, but the next thing I'm conscious of is sitting on the floor in front of the kitchen cabinets of our house in the victor's village, meticulously lining ceramic jars and glass bottles into a box, placing clean cotton bandages between them to prevent breaking, wrapping bunches of dried flowers. Suddenly, I remember the rose on my dresser. Was it real? And if so, is it still up there? I have to resist the temptation to check. If it's there, it will only frighten me all over again. I hurry with the packing. When the cabinets are empty, I rise to find that Gale has materialized in my kitchen. It's disturbing how soundlessly he can appear. He's leaning on the table, his fingers spread wide against the wood grain. I set the box between us. Remember? He asks. This is where you kissed me? So, the heavy dose of morphling administered after the whipping wasn't enough to erase that from his consciousness. I didn't think you'd remember that, I say. I'd have to be dead to forget. Maybe even not then, he tells me. Maybe I'll be like that man in the hanging tree. Still waiting on an answer. Gale, who I have never seen cry, has tears in his eyes. To keep them from spilling over, I reach forward and press my lips against his. We taste of heat, ashes, and misery. It's a surprising flavor for such a gentle kiss. He pulls away first and gives me a wry smile. <sighs> oh, I knew you'd kiss me. How? I say, because I didn't know myself. It's because I'm in pain, he says. It's the only way I can get your attention. He picks up the box. Don't worry, Katniss. It'll pass. He leaves before I can answer. I'm too weary to work through his latest charge. I spend the short ride back to 13 curled up in a seat, trying to ignore Plutarch going on about one of his favorite subjects. Weapons humankind no longer has at its disposal. High-flying planes, military satellites, cell disintegrators, drones, biological weapons with expiration dates brought down by the destruction of the atmosphere, or lack of resources, or moral squeamishness. You can hear the regret of a head game maker who can only dream of such toys. Who must make do with hovercraft and land-to-land -land missiles and plain old guns. After dropping off my mock J suit, I go straight to bed without eating. Even so, Prim has to shake me to get me up in the morning. After breakfast, I ignore my schedule and take a nap in the supply closet. When I come to, crawling out from between the boxes of chalk and pencils, it's dinner time again. I get an extra large portion of pea soup and I'm headed back to compartment E when Boggs intercepts me. There's a meeting in command. Disregard your current schedule, he says. Don? Did you follow it at all today? He asks in exasperation. Who knows? I'm mentally disoriented. 
I hold up my wrist to show my medical bracelet and realize it's gone. See? I can't even remember they took my bracelet. Why do they want me in command? Did I miss something? I think Cressida wanted to show you the twelve propos, but I guess you'll see him when they air. That's what I need a schedule of when the propos air. He shoots me a look, but doesn't comment further. People have crowded into command, but they've saved me a seat between Finnick and Plutarch. The screens are already up on the table, showing the regular capital feed. What's going on? Aren't we seeing the Twelve Propos? Oh, no, says Plutarch. I mean, possibly. I don't know exactly what footage BD plans to use. BD thinks he found a way to break into the feed nationwide, says Finnick. So that our propos will air in the capital, too. He's down working on it in special defense now. There's live programming tonight. Snow's making an appearance or something. I think it's starting. The capital seal appears, underscored by the anthem. Then I'm staring directly into President Snow's snake eyes as he greets the nation. He seems barricaded behind his podium, but the white rose in his lapel is in full view. The camera pulls back to include Peta, off to one side in front of a projected map of Pan Am. He's sitting in an elevated chair, his shoes supported by a metal rung. The foot of his prosthetic leg taps out a strange, irregular beat. Beads of sweat have broken through the layer of powder on his upper lip and forehead, but it's the look in his eyes, angry yet unfocused, that frightens me the most. He's worse, I whisper. Finnick grabs my hand to give me an anchor, and I try to hold on. Peter begins to speak in a frustrated tone about the need for the ceasefire. He highlights the damage done to key infrastructure in various districts, and as he speaks, parts of the map light up, showing images of the destruction. A broken dam in Seven. A derailed train with a pool of toxic waste spilling from the tank cars. A granary collapsing after a fire. All of these are attributed to rebel action. Bam! Without warning, I'm suddenly on television, standing in the rubble of the bakery. Plutarch jumps to his feet. He did it! Petey broke in! The room's buzzing in reaction when Pete is back, distracted. He's seen me on the monitor. He tries to pick up his speech by moving on to the bombing of a water purification plant when a clip of Finnick talking about Rue replaces him. And then the whole thing breaks down into a broadcast battle as the capital tech masters try to fend off Beatty's attack. But they are unprepared. And Beatty, apparently in anticipation that he would not hold on to control, has an arsenal of five to ten second clips to work with. We watch the official presentation deteriorate as it's peppered with choice shots from the propos. Plutarch's in spasms of delight, and almost everybody is cheering Beatty on, but Finnick remains still and speechless beside me. I meet Hamish's eyes from across the room, and I see my own dread mirrored back. The recognition that with every cheer, Peta slips even further from our grasp. The capital seals back up, accompanied by a flat audio tone. This lasts about 20 seconds before Snow and Peta return. The set is in turmoil. We're hearing frantic exchanges from their booth. Snow plows forward, saying that clearly the rebels are now attempting to disrupt the dissemination of information they find incriminating. But both truth and justice will reign. The full broadcast will resume when security has been reinstated. He asks Peta if, given tonight's demonstration, he has any parting thoughts for Katniss Everdeen.
At the mention of my name, Peter's face contorts with effort. Katniss. How do you think this will end? What will be left? No one is safe. Not in the capital, not in the districts, and you in 13. <laughs> he inhales sharply as if fighting for air. His eyes look insane. Dead by morning. Off camera, Snow orders, End it. Beatty throws the whole thing into chaos by flashing a still shot of me standing in front of the hospital at three second intervals. But between the images, we are privy to the real life action being played out on the set. Peter's attempt to continue speaking. The camera knocked down to record the white tiled floor, the scuffle of boots, the impact of the blow that's inseparable from Peter's cry of pain, and his blood as it splatters the tiles. There we are, folks. That is the end of part one of book three. Now, this means a couple of things for us. First of all, um, next week, we are going to be getting back into our regular schedule of three chapters per week instead of just the two. Um, secondly, the reason we had to do that was because my internet keeps dropping. Um, and the... Uh, <laughs> uh, and the resolution to that is a new router. I've been talking to other streamers out here in my area. Um, this was the solution that they were that they came up with, and they said they have never had a problem with it again. So that is very encouraging to me. Um, to everyone who wishes to donate to the fund to uh, improve my router situation, uh, I thank you very much to uh, Garrick, um, to Hogwarts Hippie, to Chase, to Sparkle Lovegood, and to Sander. You folks have gotten me very quickly uh, past my low goal of 150, uh, and I'm on my way to my high goal of 300. Uh, my 150 goal, uh, that will mean that I will be, I should be good for, for a while, for a few years at least, but um, uh, for my high goal at 300, I will hopefully never have to replace my router again uh, unless somehow I, I turn into like a studio and, and and just explode in which case I probably won't need to have a fundraiser for it but y'all thank you very very much uh, Sander says Sam you better not see this as income this is a gift so no taxes apply to this money uh, never you fear Sander I have actually already um, just this month I set up a new account with some things so I'm actually going to be able to track my finances uh, streaming specific stuff much more handily uh, so the next time I have to do taxes it's not going to be quite as much of a bear um, so uh, Sander, I appreciate the reminder. Um, another reminder for all of you good folks, uh, and this is, boy, this is why it's nice to have this Linktree option. Go ahead and follow that same Linktree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Sidecar Stories, Linktree slash Sidecar Stories. You can follow that over to the Discord as well, and the Discord is where this weekend will be the last time that you can put in suggestions into the Flying Sidecar Suggestion box. Uh, now that the stream is semi-officially over, we've still got some sound bites to go through. We're going to be reading some Elantris in just a moment here, but um, this is probably a good time to go do these things. If you are thinking about donating, go ahead and go do it now. Uh, if you don't wish to forget, um, and if you are thinking about adding a series, please definitely go ahead and head over to Discord, 
the it is under the flying side car category of channels and the 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 channel itself is called flying suggestion box go ahead and put your suggestions for the next series in there if you want it to be considered for the next vote now this of course does indeed mean that we're going to be taking this vote very soon uh, i plan to kind of leave the vote up throughout uh part two of this book really nice that these books are organized in this way so part two the assault during this part, uh, that is when the actual vote will be up, and so you can anticipate that beginning next week, that vote will be available. Um, so, get y'all get yourselves in there if you have anything to suggest. Otherwise, the window closes as of the end of this weekend. I'll keep it open until then, just in case people filter in and and uh, like to watch these vods on the weekend. Go ahead and head on over there. I did I did give a warning about this last week, so keep that in mind. But um, that is going to be the end of it, and then we're going to take our vote. Um, and so I'm super excited for that. Um, this has been an absolutely grand series. I'm so, so happy we read this one. Um, uh, I wasn't particularly hesitant on this one. This this one, I went into it pretty confident, and it did not let us down. Hunger Games, fantastic series to read. It is kind of perfect for this, for this stream that we do. So, uh, the next Flying Sidecar vote, a voice actor's venture through some stories we all love, that is going to begin next week. I hope you're excited for it. Um, and that is also going to be taking place over in the Discord, because that is our that is the garage. That's our main hub. Um, the link tree is how you can get to all these places, but the Discord is where I do most of my communicating. It's where you can find all the discussions and all the notifications. Discord is fantastic. Uh, I hope you will get on over there. So, once again, link tree slash sidecar stories if you want to find that. If you want to find the PayPal link, if you want to help out with the, uh, with the tyranny of rough internet. So there's that. <laughs> there you go, folks. Um, this has been grand. I'm going to take a quick break because I've got more reading to do. And then when I come back, we're going to start with uh, we're going to start with some bad beans. Um, and then uh, we're going to go on and we're going to read some Elantris. So stick around, folks. We've got a new chapter of Elantris to read um, and actually part of a previous one because it was like, I, I think the organization was the first chapter was 30 pages long and the next chapter was seven pages long. So we read a, a, a bit into the first chapter and uh, we're gonna sort of finish that off today. Um, assuming that my current router can just hold on just a little longer. You can do it just a little bit longer. Um, Orly Rose, Sander, Hogwarts Hippie, uh, Louise Mortal. Hey, Sapphire Lady, all you good folks, I hope you have a fantastic evening if you're leaving us here. Uh, I see Memnite in the mix as well. Hello, hello. Um, Y'all, grand to have you here. I hope you have an excellent evening. Thank you all so much for joining me, and I will see you all next week.